You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. Uh, My name is Tamarcus Raglan. I am the young adult minister here at Citizens Church. And man, can I just tell you, you guys sound beautiful. That last chorus was awesome. Uh, So glad to be here. Shameless plug for the young adult ministry. Uh, January 14th, we are going to be back in full swing um, and to kick off the new year right. We are going to be at Penn Stack, just enjoying some good time of bowling and food and fellowship. Um, And so looking forward to uh, seeing all of you there. And um, there will be registration for that. Uh, I don't believe it's up yet, but it will be very soon. So be looking out um, for that as well. Um, today, due to some COVID-related circumstances, our first and second string preachers were unable to be here with us. And so we're kind of like the Cowboys back in October when they were counting on Ben DiNucci to, you know, get them that, that win against the Eagles. Um, they didn't win. And so hopefully tonight, today goes better than that game did um, or the Cowboys season for that matter. Um, My beautiful wife, Chrissy, and I have been covenant members here for about four years. Uh, You may have seen her up here uh, helping serve uh, with the worship team, Um, or your children may know her from uh, serving in Kid City uh, from time to time. And we also have a a wonderful 18-month-old named Taj. He is just a bundle of joy and energy. He just keeps going and going and going all day. Uh, And we are also expecting a little girl to be coming here in uh, the next few weeks. And so um, glad to be here today. Yes, very excited about that girl dad. And so um, today, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at verses 36 um, through 50. And if you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me, and I'm going to read through that for us, and then we'll dissect it a little bit. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, talking about Jesus, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, which he learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50, and when they could not pay, he canceled both of their debts. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answers, uh, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt? And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now the story we just read is an episode of a broader reality that has taken place in Galilee during this time. Jesus had been working miracles throughout the villages and when he was approached by some of John the Baptist's disciples who were wondering whether or not he really was the Messiah that they were waiting for, um, he affirmed who he was to them, and then he proceeded to address the crowds which had gathered around um, defending John the Baptist's ministry. And at the conclusion of his address, this is what we are told. If you look back at verse 29 and 30, it says, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So there are these two categories of people being juxtaposed in the passage, right? Those who have received the message of John the Baptist concerning Jesus the Messiah who is to come and bring the kingdom of heaven here, and those who have rejected the message of John about Jesus, or as Luke puts it, the purpose of God for themselves. And what lies beneath the surface of both of these two categories are two distinct ways of approaching Jesus. Uh, Last month, in the belly of quarantine, I decided to learn how to play chess. And by that, I mean I had the ambitious goal of becoming a grandmaster, right? That's the highest level chess player you can reach. And I think right now I'm like what they call a class F player. Don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound good. but I can dream, right? And so um, I don't know if you're familiar with the world of chess, but I know it, it is far grander than I first anticipated when I picked it up. Um, as I began to uh, watch videos to learn how to play and develop different strategies, uh, I just started to feel very overwhelmed with all the information, especially when I was playing the game, right? Like, um, I think I saw that every time you a play, there's about 30 different moves you can make at any given time, give or take. Um, and so to make matters worse, every time you move, they also grade your move based on this scale between the best move, an excellent move, a good move, or an inaccurate move, a mistake, or a blunder, right? So you, you get graded every single time you move a piece. And so I'll play a game, and rather I win or lose, I'll look at the analysis at the end, and typically I've made eight inaccurate moves, 12 mistakes, and 10 blunders. And since the average game of chess is only about 40 moves, that means 75% of the time I was doing something wrong. Um, so I hadn't learned quite, quite well enough yet. So I go back to the videos, and I keep watching, and I found this guy named Ben Feingold. He's a grandmaster, um, and I started watching his videos. He's really good at chess, and he's also really funny, so it's entertaining to watch. And so I um, actually got my, my wife into watching it too. I don't know if it's because she loves chess as much as me or she just loves me, um, but I'm content either way. And so one of our favorite things we've done is, you know, he'll have these moments where he'll show you a position and he'll say, all right, you can pause 
and see if you can find what the best move is. And he'll say, you know, there's 16 legal moves you can make right now, but only one of them a grandmaster would make. And so we'll pause the video, and we'll look through, and we're like, you know, maybe I'd move the knight, or I'll move this. No, 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 that's too simple. Maybe I'll move the queen, and yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, 10 times out of 10, we're both wrong, right? <laughs> and so at this point, my hopes of being a grandmaster are just looking bleak. And I'm just like, you know, I don't, I don't even know how they can do this. How do you always know what the best move is? I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the board, and I can barely, you know, make heads or tails of it. He goes on to explain the importance of studying Grandmaster games. So come to find out, uh, the games that he was showing us were actually Grandmaster games that he had memorized move by move. Even more so, I watched the video, found out that his father also was a Grandmaster. And so he did not learn how to play chess just from knowing about other Grandmasters or trying to figure it out on his own, but he learned from his father, who was a Grandmaster, and he didn't rely on his own wits, but he relied on his father who had experience to provide him with what he lacked. And in doing so, the game came, became a lot simpler for him. And so I don't know where you find yourself today, but I imagine that all of us walking into a year like this, after a year like 2020, we're somewhere between two spaces, right? One, you look back over the past year and you just see a big mess, right? Like life around you, was messy internally, maybe life was messy, and as you're looking forward, you're just thinking, man, like this year just has to be better than last year, right? I just, I can't endure another 2020, right? If, if your life was a chessboard, you wouldn't be able to make heads or tails of what you're looking at. You wouldn't know which piece to move next, right? So many things need improvement. So many things need change. So many variables are left unanswered that it almost feels overwhelming. You don't know where to start. Or maybe you look back on this past year, and as extraordinary as it's been, you feel as though right, you, it hasn't been as bad as it could have been for you. right? Like Maybe you took a couple punches here or there, but you feel like you were able to handle it well. You know, maybe you never had to you know, suffer the ills of quarantine and sleep in the garage while your wife slides you your meals under the door. Um, you know, if that's you, awesome. I'm not, you know, I'm not jealous at all. Um, right, but even still, right, you've probably made some mistakes and some blunders here or there, even though you made out okay. And no matter where we find ourselves on this spectrum, I imagine that if you're sitting here today or if you're listening um, at home, then the decision you've made for 2021, at least one of them, is that you desire to move closer to the master this year than you were last year. Right, as you, like rather this is your first time coming back to church in a while, or maybe this is a weekly occurrence from you, or this is your first time coming ever, right, that you've made a decision that you are going to seek more from God this year, hoping that he'd be able to provide what you lack. But as we're going to see in God's word this morning, there is a right way to approach the master, and there is a wrong way, and the way we approach him affects what we receive from him. In our passage, we meet two individuals who find themselves in the same room as Jesus, but the way they approach him is drastically different. The first person we meet is a Pharisee named Simon. And in verse 36, we are told that Simon invites Jesus to eat with him. And he has right, these, these two at the table, and they recline together. Right? 
being a Pharisee, he would have been seen as a pillar of righteousness to the community around him, right? He would have been well-versed in the law. His synagogue attendance would have been perfect. And his character, right, would have been of above reproach. And he probably would have been associated with other such people in society. Um, if you were to meet him today, you'd think he was a stand-up guy, good fellow, you know, reliable. And Jesus is this new rabbi in his midst, right? He has been coming around and teaching and um, ministering to people. And so it wouldn't have been uncommon for Simon, as a religious leader himself, to invite someone like Jesus to his house for dinner, you know, maybe just to acquaint himself with this new rabbi that is in his town. It also would have been normal in their culture during a dinner like this to leave the door and the windows open uh, one, to allow the needy to be able to take some of the leftovers at the conclusion of the meal, but also for other people in the town to come in and listen to the conversation of the two religious leaders. The locals would stand in the room against the wall and listen through the window or outside of the door. And so if you would imagine with me for a second, right, you're a Galilean and you hear about this dinner taking place at Simon's house, and you're in the neighborhood, so you decide, you know, I'm going to stop by and listen in. And surely when you get there, you find a company of other religious leaders and people of, of good reputation. And depending on your station in society, either you feel in very good company and as if you belong in such community, or perhaps you feel a sense of gratitude to be in such rarefied air, right? Simon and Jesus would be reclined at the table in the middle of the room in front of you, and you'd just be standing against the wall, trying your best, right, not to disturb the moment, right, just a fly on the wall. Could you imagine the esteem that that must have given Simon, right? Jesus, this new rabbi, has been um, crowded with people who have come to hear him teach and to see him perform miracles and to be near him and to touch him, and now Simon is having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him in his own house at his own dinner table, right? Again, we don't, we don't know exactly what Simon's motives were at this point, but what we can all agree with is that this sure looks good for Simon right now, right? Then Luke writes, behold, or pay close attention to what happens next. In walks a woman of the city. The scriptures tell us that she was a sinner, and commentators, right, they debate about whether or not she was a prostitute, but what is clear is whatever her sin was, she had a reputation that was publicly known. In this culture, to be labeled as a sinner was not only a spiritual reality, but a sociological one. It was to be placed in a class of persons who were unworthy, who are likely ritually unclean, and who should be avoided and excluded at all costs. Right? This, was, this was cancel culture before Twitter coined the phrase. Right? If she was around today, her shortcomings would have been trending on all major social media platforms, and whatever following she may have had would have vanished, and her credibility in the public sphere would have faded into obscurity. This was the woman's plight. Look at verse 37. The Bible says that when she had learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she went there bringing an alabaster flask of ointment. You have to understand that for the woman, this is like that moment in Indiana Jones when there's a treasure right in front of them, 
but it's surrounded by like hungry alligators and serpents and a moat and that like strange mummy thing that's always there, right? And, and here Jesus is in the middle of the room, right? This, this man that she's heard has been meeting the needs in her city with love and compassion, who has been healing people from their diseases and their ailments and spreading hope where there is none. And she's within striking distance of him. But there's a catch. He's at the Pharisee's house, and she's a sinner. But she goes anyway, right? You feel the the tension that is in the room when she arrives. She slips through the door without uttering a word and makes her way to Jesus's feet. And since him and Simon are likely reclining at the table, right, the tables are low and he'd likely be leaning on his side with his feet away from the table, it would be easy for her to access his feet without causing too much alarm in the room. And you could just imagine her heart thumping as she is in, right, unwanted company. She knows all too well what it means for a woman like her to be in a room like this. But she can't shake what she's heard about Jesus and what he's like. And she's figured if there's anyone who could do anything for her lowly state, surely it must be him. So she makes her way to his feet, and the Bible says that she begins to weep. You know, like, not that, like, cute cry, but the ugly cry when someone's like, what's wrong? And your emotions just overtake you, and you can't help but let the floodgates go, right? She is showering Jesus' feet with her tears. And at this point, you've got to imagine that it gets, like, pretty awkward in the room, right? Like, can you see the glares from the other guests, right? They're just trying to kind of stand aside, and they're, they're murmuring to one another. Isn't, isn't that her? What's she doing here? You heard about what she did the other month, right? But this doesn't deter her, right? She kneels and proceeds to let down her hair so that she can wash Jesus' feet with it. And in that culture, a woman's hair is to be covered at all times, especially when she's in public. And it would have been especially unfitting for her to let her hair down in this setting and to wash someone's feet with it, right? This would only further validate the labels that she's already received. Remember, everyone else in the room is just trying not to be distracting, and you could imagine that they're all sitting here wondering, what on earth does this woman think she's doing? Can you hear the gasps? She's officially broken the status quo. She's made a spectacle of herself, and yet none of this deters her from her actions. She continues to go on washing Jesus' feet and anointing them with the expensive ointment that was around her neck. And she's so overcome with emotion that she begins to kiss his feet. And now it's as if no one else is in the room but her and Jesus. Church, as she grovels at the feet of Jesus, she was not concerned with the scorn of the Pharisees in her midst, nor the whispers of the town murmuring about her behavior, nor was she given into the cultural norms which would call her behavior degrading and undignified. All she could see was Jesus. And that's all that mattered for her, right? Any of us use some holy tunnel vision this year? We can't be bothered with what everyone has to say about us all the time when we're seeking after God. 
There's one of my dear friends. He's a pastor at Concord Church. Uh, his name is Aaron Moore. He used to say, if you displease God, it doesn't matter who you please. But if you please God, it doesn't matter who you displease. The woman's only focus was to please an audience of one. Meanwhile, Simon is disgusted, right? Uh, but notice, not because this sinner has come to his party and seemingly degraded his guest of honor, but because she, Jesus, has allowed her to do it, right? Look at verse 39. Simon thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is that is touching him, for she is a sinner. In the Greek, this is a second-class conditional statement, which is a fancy way of saying that Simon's thought could be rendered this way. If this man were a prophet, which he is not, he would have known what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, but he doesn't. In other words, Simon doesn't believe Jesus to be who he says he is because of the actions he is exhibiting towards this woman who is a sinner, right? Simon is thinking, maybe I invited the wrong person to the party. Maybe I was wrong about you and who you are. But Simon's internal thoughts imply another belief that he must hold about himself, right? To believe that if Jesus knew what kind of woman she was would disqualify her from being in his presence implies that because Jesus knows what kind of man he is, a good one, Simon would suppose, that Jesus has accepted his invitation and his company, right? As if Jesus doesn't know his mistakes and his blunders as well. But what Simon failed to realize in this entire situation is that the kind of man that he was, and the kind of person that the woman was, was more alike than he cared to acknowledge. And it was besides the point, right? Like, Simon was dissatisfied with Jesus' conduct because it was not in accordance with his standard of righteousness, and the woman was satisfied just to be in the presence of righteousness himself. There are two ways to approach the master, but only one is right. Church, these are the two postures by which the human heart can approach God. Like Simon, we can be satisfied with simply being his associate. We can recline with him as if we were a peer and suppose that our good deeds and our good manner have somehow merited his company and his companionship. Like Simon, supposing he was more than he was before Jesus, keeping the master at arm's length, welcoming his company but without being in true communion with him. Or we can approach Jesus like this woman, empty and poor in spirit, knowing that we have nothing to offer, nothing of merit, and that we're in dire need of his grace and his mercy towards us. Both of them were in the same room with Jesus, but only one of them drew near rightly. And look at how Jesus responds after Simon gives his inward scoff. Jesus, right, answers his thought. A creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And now uh, a regular worker during that day who worked six days a week, taking off for Sabbath and give or take some religious holidays here and there, will probably make roughly 300 denarii a year. And so in Jesus' parable, right, one person owed roughly 
two years worth of pay and the other owed about two months. Simon, probably sensing where Jesus is going, kind of snarkingly responds, right, I suppose the one that he forgave more. Right, right, like, what do, you, what do you want me to say? And Jesus tells him, you have judged correctly. And then Jesus does something that seems subtle in the text, but it is loaded with significance for this woman. Here she is weeping as undignified as one possibly can at the feet of Jesus in a room full of accusers. And the Bible says that Jesus turns towards her. Right. These are the words we sing in the blessing. Right. Make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Friends, others may turn and scoff when you are at your lowest, but Jesus is one who turns towards those who are broken and found at his feet. That's who he is, right? Of all the eyes in the room that have landed on her, the pair whose opinion mattered most are set on her and they are filled with love and compassion and grace towards her, right? But not only that, right, Jesus, Jesus does more, right? He goes on to praise her offering and to rebuke Simon's poor hospitality right there in the middle of the party. Look at verse 44. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wept my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet and you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you her sins are forgiven though they are many, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Can you see the expression on Simon's face? How could Jesus call him out like this at his own party? Right? Simon was the one who invited Jesus over in the first place. He provided the meal and all of the refreshments that they had had. Like, why, why would Jesus do this? Right? And on a practical level, right, offering your guests something to wash their feet with, greeting them with a kiss and anointing their head with oil upon arrival was just standard practice during their time and day. But even deeper than just the tradition, Jesus was revealing something to the both of them, two things that he could see, right? To Simon, he revealed that despite all of his accolades and attempts to manufacture for himself this appearance of godliness and holiness that Jesus could see through it. That regardless of how little he perceived his debt to be in comparison with the woman, right? Simon was in need of the same forgiveness as the woman. He too was in need of what the master had to offer. And let us not be deceived when Jesus states that those who are forgiven little love little. He is not affirming how squeaky clean Simon's rap sheet is, right? but exposing his self-righteousness. None of us bring a clean rap sheet to the table with Jesus. The whole point of Jesus' parable was not to say that the woman owed so much and that Simon owed so little, but that neither of them had enough to cover the debt. Both of their righteousness accounts were insufficient to cover the cost of their sins. Friends, may we take inventory of ourselves, at least we be deceived. None of us bring enough righteousness to the table. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, all of us have become like those who are unclean. We all 
bring righteous acts that are like filthy rags, right? We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Hear me, Jesus has not welcomed you to the table because you are worthy, but because you are wanted. Somebody tell your neighbor, Jesus wants you. That's, it's true, right? He, he wants you. He wanted the woman to know this very truth that despite all of her sins and shortcomings, her reputations and the blunders she may have made, that he could see her faith in action. That she was forgiven and that she was still wanted, right? If you didn't notice, the woman never speaks throughout this whole story, right? Apart from God's uh, acknowledgement, right, at this time, it's hard to, to know exactly how she might have been feeling or what she was thinking. But in Jesus' address to Simon, he's not only silencing her accusers from without, but he's speaking to those accusers that are within her. You know that voice, that broken record that always plays constantly to the tunes of your shortcomings? I know I do. Right, that, that condemning voice that always says, I've, I've gone too far this time, and surely God wouldn't want anything to do with me now, and there can't be a, a place for me at the table anymore. Friend, that voice is a bold-faced lie. Jesus speaks truth into her soul with audible words, daughter, I know your sins, and I know there are many, much more than your accusers could ever know. And I forgive each and every one of them. There's still a place for you at my table. You're still wanted, right? Both of them were unworthy. And neither of them had enough to cover the debt of their sins. But what differed between them and what they received from Jesus was in their approach. Simon came to Jesus offering his home and a meal and his morality, but not his heart. The woman, on the other hand, came to Jesus with her tears and a contrite heart. And both of them were in the same room with Jesus, but only one left justified before God in that encounter. Later in the video I was telling you about before, uh, Grandmaster Feingold explained why so many people don't progress in their game of chess. He says uh, they have their way of playing, right? And even when people will hire him to be their coach, right, he'll try to redirect the way they play the game and they'll tell him, oh, this, this is just the way I do it. Um, so they go on years and years and years doing it their way and never making any progress because they come to the grandmaster with their own standard rather than submitting to the one that he has laid before them. How have you approached the master, right? How, how have you approached him? There's only one way that, that moves us forward, right? None of us can be sure what 2021 holds in store, but what is certainly true for all of us is that apart from Christ, our righteousness accounts are really low. We don't have enough to, to cover the debt. We don't have enough to, to navigate the game and to figure out what's best apart from Christ we are left to our own devices, and it's just not enough. And as a people who want more of God in 2021, may we consider how we approach him. Not beside him with our clout and accomplishments, but at his feet with our tears and our sins ever before us, crying out, Hosanna, God, help me. 
Rescue me, O God, from my sins and from my shame, all the while knowing that he will always turn towards those who are found broken at his feet. Let's pray. God, we are we're desperate for you. Lord, all of us coming to this new year, Lord God, hungry for more of you, hungry for your presence, hungry from, for a word from you, hungry for forgiveness, Lord God, to be made more like you, Lord. And apart from you, Lord, we don't, we don't know what to do. Right? There, there can be many promises made about the year and people can, can make plans and people can tell us what will be better. But Lord God, at the end of the day, none of us know. What we do know is that we, we don't have enough apart from you. And Lord, we just pray that as we draw nearer to you this year, Lord, that you would meet us like you met the woman in Luke chapter 7, Lord God, with compassion and with grace, Lord, as we just lay our sins and our shortcomings before you. Lord, I pray that we would not come to you as if we have all the answers and as if we have it all figured out and, and made, made together, Lord, but that we would come humbly and contrite, knowing that as we seek you with humility, Lord, that you will meet us with grace and with compassion. Father, I pray for, for anyone here today or, or listening at home, maybe, maybe they've never even approach the table before, right? Maybe they feel like, you know, I'm just, I'm too unworthy to come to you. And, or maybe I'm just, I'm not clean enough yet and I need to get myself together first. I pray that you would speak to them this morning and just tell them, no, there's, there's a place for you here. That if you look at the table and you see those around it and you see Jesus at the middle and you feel like, no, I'm, I'm not worthy to be here, then you are in good company because none of us are worthy. God, none of us are worthy to be here, Lord, but because you want us, your word says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whomsoever, right, whosoever will believe in him could have life. Lord, I pray that you would invite those to the table this morning. Lord, and I pray that as we cling to you, Lord God, that we would just be filled with the grace, that we would receive the forgiveness and the mercy that we need to continue forward. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.